Well, as the kids are dismissed, you can take your Bibles, open up with me to the Gospel of John, the first chapter. John chapter 1, as we wrap up our study of that great first chapter, which in many ways, although as we looked and studied the prologue, those first 18 verses are very much the introduction to the entire book. Um, we also get in these kind of next two sections, first last week and now this morning, uh, the beginning of this argument of who are the witnesses? Who are the witnesses going to be throughout the Gospel of John? That John's setting out to help you identify who Jesus is. And that's going to be massive. Depending on who you say he is, and he's going to argue all along the way, it's going to have a distinct impact. It's going to impact where you spend eternity. Not just things in this life, but things throughout all eternity, which is why he wants you and wants to prove to you to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Let's look here at chapter 1, verses 35, and we're going to see the disciples' witness. 35 through the end of the chapter. That's what it says. John writes, on the next day, John, so they're talking John the Baptist again, was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak and followed Jesus. And when Jesus turned and noticed them following, he said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, Where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found out, or he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of John, and you shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. And on the next day he desired to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. And now Philip was, with, was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said about him, behold, truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, from where do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Father, we come to your word, to this section of your revelation as it reveals all of these descriptions by titles, by names of who Jesus not just was, but who he is. As we look upon these and what it means for Jesus to be the Lamb of God, for Him to be the Christ, the Messiah, for Him to be the Son of God, even the King of Israel, as Nathaniel declares, help us to see more 
of Christ, the glories of Christ. Yes, he is. We saw last week the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But he is all these things as well. Fully God and fully man, rightfully the answer to all the questions in the Old Testament, rightfully the prophetic end of what they looked forward to and the one who would come not only to save Israel, not only to redeem them, but as we see here, he is the savior of the world. And so we just ask now that we would see more of Christ as we look here and see him revealed as your Holy Spirit saw fit to those who read and to those even now who read this gospel. We just pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, there are names that we choose and names that we do not choose. If you've ever had a nickname that you don't like, I I know how you feel. Sometimes those nicknames are names that simply are descriptors. Sometimes they're ironic names. Somebody who's six foot five, who's called Little, you know, Little John in Robin Hood. It's, it's an ironic name. For me as a little one, um, I was kind of nicknamed Tigger. It didn't stick. No one calls me that, so you don't need to call me that. Uh, when I was really little, because they joked around because I was the third born in the family and I bounced around. And everyone thought, oh, just like Tigger, he bounces around. The names are meant to be descriptive. If you look at a family and you see certain qualities, you see another one coming. So I have four boys. There's going to be moments and times where the Sunday school teachers, and they smirk, and this is already starting to happen, when you kind of have four boys, and so they've seen the oldest, they've seen the second oldest, and here comes the third, and they kind of go, here's another one, right? There's certain things, they're all unique, they're all different in their own ways, that you start to see some qualities, hopefully some good ones, maybe not all, but they go, here comes another one. You see those things kind of come and go within even like a family name or something like a nickname. But when you say certain things, you give people a name or you, you comment that that person is a king on the court, you're saying something about him. A lot of the phrase gets thrown around in sports that they're the GOAT, the greatest of all time. You're trying to communicate that you believe that this person is the best at what they do. Well, in the first century, names are important, more important even than we see names today. In the Old Testament scriptures, names are important. They describe something. And they are looking, as we've seen, not just for Jesus, that name, although that does mean something in and of itself coming from Joshua. But they're looking for someone to fulfill these titles, that someone who is the Messiah. And maybe they don't even understand that the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, as we'll see, is the same as the Son of God, who is the same as the Lamb of God. And all these things help us see the glory of Christ in a greater way. And they all push us along in John's argument to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, as he explains in the end of his gospel. And so this morning, we're going to look at it from this perspective. We're going to see six of those titles that declare the witness of these early disciples. They're going to declare... The identity of who he is. Because that's the question. Who is he? In fact, we saw already when John the Baptist is introduced, they asked John the Baptist when the Pharisees described, say, well, who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you the Christ? Are you the prophet? So we already know. No, no, no. That's not John the Baptist. But the question comes in, well, now here's another one coming. Is he that one? And the answer is the definitive, yes, he is the one that fulfills all of those things. And so these titles are given to him, the ones that John won't accept. John the Baptist says, it's not me. But he's going to be doing what he does best, which is point to the rightful 
king, the rightful lamb of God, as we saw last week at the end, 33-34. And so we're going to see these six titles as they declare the identity of who Jesus is. We're going to see a couple more. You can say rabbi, teacher, those things are in here as well. Um, But these are kind of the ones that point to the deity of all the things we've seen. And we're going to maybe even wrap up by seeing there's a lot of different titles in the whole of this first chapter. Not all of them are equally weighted. So this first one's going to be probably a little bit longer as that section describes it a little bit longer than some of the last ones. But all these things help us see the glory of Christ. So let's look at verse 35 through verse 39. And we're going to see this title, which we've already been introduced to as the Lamb of God. Particularly, it's important that we understand what does he do? And John the Baptist says he takes away the sin of the world. So that gives some clarity of what this meaning is. What does it mean that he is the Lamb of God? Because what would they expect? We, of course, can understand Lamb. We understand he's sacrificial Lamb. We understand that he is, uh, he is crucified at Passover as the perfect Lamb. But what would they have understood? Well, I think this Lamb of God, this term, this goes back to, we talked about last week, they would view it as kind of understanding this refers back to all of these Old Testament sacrifices. The Old Covenant. Lamb is connected in those ways throughout the different sacrifices as a means of which covering sin. And of course, Christ will be the once and for all sacrifice for sin. And they foreshadow these ancient sacrifices perfectly what is fulfilled in the sacrifice of Christ. And so... Verse 35, on the next day, John, again, was standing with his two disciples, and he looks at Jesus as he walked, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God. And so the second day in a row, I guess he doesn't have to say it twice, and he doesn't want to hold on to his disciples. In fact, there's two that are disciples, we'll see here, right? Disciples of John the Baptist, and this time they seem to get it on the next day. Oh, maybe we should follow that guy. Maybe we should ask that guy some questions. We've been following their disciples of John the Baptist, and now... Once they've heard John the Baptist say, do what he does best, right? Point to Jesus. The disciples hear him speak. And what does it say in verse 37? They follow Jesus. And we're going to see this in the same kind of framework as a lot of the things in the Gospel of John. That when these phrases follow, these phrases of they're going to ask questions. Can we come see where you're staying? There's going to be even more behind that. Just as there's a little bit more behind that the woman at the well is looking for water. And Jesus says, I have water. It's not just water that will quench your physical thirst, but I have living water. Or that he is the living bread. Or even a Nicodemus. He's using something like, you need to be born again to this idea to communicate spiritual truth. Even in the renaming here shortly of Peter. And so this following of Jesus communicates more than simply, oh, they got on his tail and they followed him. No, this is more than that. They've been following their teacher, John the Baptist, and now they've left him. And this communicates now that they are following Jesus. And why? Verse 38. They seek something. And that's what Jesus knows. So it's kind of this picture of the two disciples are going. They're walking along and Jesus is going, okay, I got some people following. And he asks a penetrating question. And the penetrating question is, what do you seek? And the answer is basic, but also communicates more than at first glance. Because what do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, and you'll notice this, which translates means teacher, which might tell you a little bit about our audience. They 
not probably a native Aramaic audience, and therefore he wants to translate these terms so they would understand what he's talking about. Just simply teacher, and they're referring to him not here as just the Christ or Messiah, but as teacher, we want to learn from you. It's one of respect they want to learn, Rabbi. Where are you staying? And they don't just here want to know his address. Punch it in, and we're going to come find you later. No, they want to come and learn and ask questions. They want to ultimately spend time with Jesus. The question of what do you seek is loaded. What do they want from him? Do they want a political Savior, remember we've talked this period of the first century, there is ramped up expectation of the Messiah. And you have a John the Baptist they've been following who's saying, don't look to me, but expect one to come after me. And now he said, this is the Lamb of God who takes the sins of the world away. And they're going, well, let's find out if it is him. But what are they looking for? A conquering Messiah? Maybe even more so, do they look for someone who will give them position or authority or riches or power? Well, I imagine they don't quite know what they're in for. I know they don't. Even their understanding of Jesus is going to grow throughout this book as it does in every gospel where their, their doubts are assuaged and their suspicions of Christ are confirmed that he is the son of God. But even early, they know because of John the Baptist that he is something different. They're not just looking for where do you live? They're saying, we want to come. And what we have been to John the Baptist, we now want to be to you. We want to be your disciples. They want to spend the time. We're going to see throughout the Gospel of John and just a basic understanding of what you even probably think of discipleship. You can't have a disciple. You can't have a student if you don't spend any time with them. Or if you do, they're not going to look very much like you or they're not going to learn very much. Time spent is massive in discipleship, which I think is a lesson we ought to learn over, a lesson we're going to see from Jesus over and over and over again. I think we know this instinctively as parents. You don't always need to have a daily planner with 16 different activities and go to every museum in Omaha every other day. At some point, though, you've you got to spend time. And that's, there's value just in time spent, even if you're not doing much. Kids are learning, and as every kind of parent knows... Good and bad habits. But they're learning just from the time spent. So what do they understand, the Lamb of God? Well, I think they have learned the lesson over two days. This is not just the Lamb of God, but it's that picture that he is the fulfillment of what they're looking for. In some way, he's going to save. Maybe they're thinking just Israel at this point. But they know he's one who has answers, who are looking, how are you going to save us. What way is he a lamb of God? And what way does he take away the sin of the world? And they want to fall and they want answers. And they're looking for that. Because they know John the Baptist is a great man. He's a man of God. But he cannot take away the sin of the world. And so they're changing going, all right, we are going to follow Jesus now. Because we want to know the answer of all that this means from this title. What is it that he is the lamb of God? And like I said, they have, I think, a basic understanding that is going to be fleshed out. Because we know the disciples aren't ready to see Christ arrested and crucified. He's not coming just to conquer, but he's coming to go to the cross. But early on, they recognized, because of John the Baptist pointing, saying, this is the one to look toward. He is the Lamb of God. 
And so we have these two disciples, unnamed, who have followed Jesus. And we find out that one of them, in verse 40, is going to be identified. And his identity is going to be revealed in verse 40 as Andrew. And you'll notice here that he is not even already known as, oh, he's Peter's brother. Because Peter was so well known. That's the reference that is made. And what's going to be declared here, and he's going to declare to his brother, is that Jesus is the Messiah or Translation, he is Christ, God's anointed one. And so the second title that pushes us towards who Jesus is and to the glories of Christ is this title of Messiah, which is kind of laden not only with Old Testament meaning, but even as that New Testament term, the Greek term Christ, that he is God's anointed one who is coming to save. It's not just a first name, it is a title. So even we say Jesus Christ, it's not a first and last name, this is a title. We see that here in verse 40. This story, this, this narrative is communicated that one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And so they heard John the Baptist speak and they followed him being Jesus. He's Andrew, Simon's brother. And so what does he do? He finds the one that he knows and tells him what he knows, which is, we found, verse 41, the Messiah. And he translates that is the Greek term for anointed one, Christ. And he brings him to Jesus. And when Jesus looked at him, he says, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. So again, this title is given, which is uh, a lot quicker reference and a quicker story of Peter's name. But it's what the Spirit wants to communicate through John. Simply that we have a profession, a witness to say he is the Christ. And then even authority to rename someone such as Peter and say, you are no longer Simon, you are going to be called Cephas or, translated in Greek, is going to be, you are going to be Peter. I don't know about you, but if I was Peter, I would go maybe, well, uh, I already have a name. What authority do you have? And I think even here it communicates that idea that you're going to follow him and that means something different. So different that you have a new Name And you can't help but see that all in chapter 1, all these different names, titles of Jesus mean something. And even here, that this idea of Peter, which he doesn't explain, but we can see from other Gospels, the idea of Peter being a rock. It's going to be a word picture to explain who he is to be. It's going to be the rock of that group of apostles. He's going to stand up. He's not going to cower away like he does at the end of the Gospel. He needs to be reconciled to Christ. But in Acts chapter 2, he's going to stand up. He's going to be the rock. He's going to be one of those apostles upon which Ephesians says that the foundation of the church are going to be built up, which of course Christ is the cornerstone. It all comes back to this idea that he is the Messiah with the kind of authority that says, I can give you a new name. If you remember back to Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, it seems not that long ago, but almost, I think, over a year ago. But it is to say, Revelation chapter 2 says... Everyone is getting a new name. It says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to whom it whom overcomes, to him. I will give some of the hidden man, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. It's another one of those pictures that when you are in Christ, the way Paul says you are a new creature. 
The old is past, the new has come. That's only true because Christ is the Messiah with the authority to give new names. We understand here at this point, though, that Peter is going to be kind of back and forth with exactly who Jesus is. Ready to fight in one moment and then fleeing in the next and then fight again. They don't have a complete right understanding of who the Messiah is or the nature of the Messiah that he must suffer first before glory. But they do here identify Jesus as the one that is rightfully the one to follow, the one who is the Christ. It's not to say they are a relinquished of all doubts yet, but this is the one that they look forward to and they understand Simon. He's saying expectantly, this is the one. It's not John the Baptist, but we have seen the one. Better come, follow me, and come see him. And when he is seen, he is simply renamed. The expectation not only of that era, but of John the Baptist is the one who would come would be greater than him. He says, I can't even, not even worthy of tying his sandals. But the next title here demonstrates how they not only are going to import John's teaching and understanding, but they're also going to stand that he is not just the Messiah, but that he is the fulfillment of all prophecy. Thirdly, you're going to see that he is not only the Lamb of God, the Messiah, but thirdly, he is the prophesied one. And here it goes back to, I think, the questions asked in chapter 1, verse 19. John's laying out, again, this story, this narrative of giving witnesses. So just so you're not confused, John the Baptist is not Elijah. He is not the Christ. He is not the prophet. And we saw that last week. What is the prophet? The one that they looked for in Moses. Moses said that, well, Yahweh responds to Moses when the people request. They have spoken well. It says that I will raise up in Deuteronomy a prophet among their brothers like you. That is like Moses. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. That is what they're looking for. And they're saying the prophesied one has come. The prophesied one. Verse 43, we see it on the next day. He desired to go into Galilee and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. So a little differently here. I imagine that you have uh, the, the two disciples, Andrew and then likely John doesn't reference himself. They've heard a good sermon from John the Baptist who says, that's the one, the Lamb of God, follow him. But in this case, Philip is sought after and Jesus says, you're mine, and he goes and he finds him. And he says to him, follow me. It's kind of an amazing thing. He seeks him out and says, you're mine, follow me. Who has that kind of authority? The prophesied one has that kind of authority to say, follow me. Even more interesting, if Philip hasn't been hearing the preaching of John the Baptist, he's maybe not even as prepared, but yet he responds and does so and is going to say that he has found the one and find someone just like Andrew found his brother. Philip is going to find Nathaniel in verse 44. And so Jesus said, follow me. And then the next step is Philip, who's from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. The prophesied one. The one who was to be raised up. The one that they were looking for. The one, you could even say, the prophets Isaiah are looking forward to. The Messiah, another way of saying that really. He's the one that all the prophecy look 
forward to. And he says, who is he? And he has an actual name, and his name is Jesus. It's interesting here, though. He doesn't use the Messiah terminology. He is simply Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, which would be a very simple way of saying that's his full name. Just like I have a first name and a last name, this would be more the son of this idea, where he's from and whose son he is. And he's from Nazareth, and he's the son of Joseph. We're going to see that Nathaniel's not going to be too impressed with that. And he is going to be a little bit surprising in his terminology. But it's to note here that who is Jesus? Well, he's not just the Lamb of God, but he is the Messiah, and he is the prophesied one. And then fourthly, we're going to see, kind of four and five, we're going to see these two tiles put together when he proclaims that he is the Son of God and the King of Israel. Son of God and the King of Israel in this section. Because what happens in this story is Nathaniel is unimpressed with who he is. Jesus from Nazareth, son of Joseph, doesn't ring any bells. In fact, what it seems to be is some level of perhaps prejudice, maybe just because Nazareth is a place from nowhere, or maybe there is a reputation. We don't really know the answer to that exactly. But what he simply is saying in verse 46 that can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. In essence, Nathaniel knows something, or Philip knows something Nathaniel doesn't know, and he says, why don't you come and you find out? Because I've met him and you need to meet him too. He doesn't argue with him. He just simply says, when you meet him, I think you will understand. You've got to appreciate Nathaniel. He seems to be the kind of person who is not going to make you wait very long before he tells you what he's thinking. Probably not unlike Peter. And I know some of every, everyone's a little different. Some people are a little cautious with speaking. And others, that first person with their hand up to give an answer. Nathaniel seems to be one who's thinking. He's not going to sugarcoat it. He's going to tell you what he says. He's the referee. I'm going to call it like I, I see it. So at least he's interested, though, that he is willing to follow. But he's suspicious because of Nazareth. Because it's perhaps a small town. And if you're from a small town, I know a lot of people in Omaha are from smaller towns. Um, in Nebraska, like myself. And there were certain towns that just had reputations, Right? Especially if you had any, you went to high school and there's kind of that athletic rivalry. And what good thing could come from that town? And if I said it and you were from my town, you would go, nothing good could come from that town. That's the way we are. There seems to be some level of that. But the good news, even though he is one who's very quick to give his opinion, to be a very, he's imperfect, but yet you'll see that Christ calls him just as well. So I find, I find encouragement in that. But Philip says, come and see. And we're going to see Nathaniel's response. Because Nathaniel is coming and it says, Jesus, verse 47, saw him coming to him and it said about him, behold, truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Or some translation will talk about it, no guile. Again, he doesn't sugarcoat it. He's going to tell you the truth. And Nathaniel at least knows, well, that sounds about right. You've got me pegged. And so he responds, then where do you know me from? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus demonstrates something that is not normal, which is, how can I be there and be here? How can I see you when you were alone? Yet I saw you. And it's enough for Nathaniel to go, this man is not just a regular prophet. He's not just one who is 
coming, preaching like John the Baptist, but he immediately says, this is someone with omniscience. And the only one who is omniscient is God. And so his answer in verse 49 is, you have the quality of God to be omniscient. So he simply answers that, Rabbi, teacher, you are the son of God. And I find it so interesting. Not only does he say you are the son of God, but he links it then with the fact that you are the king of Israel. With all the translations, the likelihood that John is more written, I think anyone to believe, but probably more towards, at least you say, Hellenized Jews or to, to Gentiles. But it's still important that he is the king of Israel. In fact, this says a little bit more about not just that Nathaniel believes that he is the son of God, but also Nathaniel saying, but I am, right? He's an Israelite of which there is no deceit. And the Israelite says, you are my king, which means he's saying something more than simply you're the king of Israel. He's saying, I'm submitting to you. The same idea of follow, which is implied here that he follows. Just a little interesting note. Uh, we don't have Nathaniel in other accounts. Is he one of the 12 or not? Is it a question for debate? A lot of people think he's Bartholomew is probably where he is and is one of the 12. But if he's just a disciple here early, it doesn't matter. The point is he's a witness. And he's witnessing to the fact that this one, Jesus, is omniscient, the son of God, the king of Israel. If you remember back to John chapter 1, verse 10, for some, for me at least, flip back a page. This is encouraging. Why? Because it says that Jesus, he was in the world and the world was made through him, but the world did not know him. He came to what his, was his own and those who were his own did not receive him. Which if it ended there, would be really discouraging. They didn't recognize him. Twelve though. You gotta love the adversatives that but here there are those who did receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. That is to even those who believed, those who believe in his name, which of course they're not born of blood or the will of the flesh, but they are born of God. Nathaniel's one of those, it would seem, that recognizes what so many Others, in fact, the vast majority reject. He recognizes Jesus is both the Son of God and the King of Israel. But although he recognizes that, we're going to see these are not the terms, these are not the titles that Jesus is going to use for himself. It's very likely that he doesn't use some of these terms because they're going to stir up all kinds of conflict. And he's not ready to go toe-to-toe with uh, either the political elite or the religious elite at this point in his early ministry. So he doesn't pick the son of God or the lamb of God. In fact, his favorite title is going to be this last title and these last two verses at the very end, the son of man. Number six, the son of man. And this is going to be a witness that he gives to himself. He's identifying two really Old Testament things, uh, Genesis 28 and Daniel chapter 7, that refer to him, which of course make him the prophesied one, as already mentioned. Verse 50, it says, the answer to Nathaniel. It's a bit, are you impressed with this? Then get ready. And he's answered and he said to Nathaniel, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? That is to say, that's all it took? Maybe you should ask more questions, but that might, that's not for me. <laughs> you know things no one else could know. But he's saying, you're going to see greater things than these. That is to say, greater things than simply knowing things you shouldn't know. What are those things? 
It's kind of an amazing description. And what Jesus says is that it's going to be like what you have a reference point in Genesis 28, which is verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. If we were to go back to Genesis 28 and we're, we're to see that vision that Jacob has, that's a reassurance of God's covenant that he made with Abraham and Jacob. This is going to be true because he's on the run from Esau being pursued. And this was the promise that God is with him. And there's a ladder going up to heaven and coming down. God is with you. And Jesus is saying in using this reference point that he is the means by which we commune with God. One commentator put it this way, that Jesus himself is the link between heaven and earth. He is the means by which the realities of heaven are brought down to earth. And Nathaniel will see this for himself. And the expression then is a figurative way of saying that Jesus will reveal heavenly things, which of course is going to be developed throughout the gospel of John. Jesus is going to be the way you peer into heaven, the way you see God who cannot be seen. How do you see him? How do you have a relationship? It is through Christ. And that is going to be far greater, far more amazing than just simply knowing something you shouldn't know. But he kind of changes, as it were, understanding he fills in this gap of descending on what? On the Son of Man, which we saw a lot in Revelation, which goes back to Daniel chapter 7, and that the Son of Man is coming. And he came up, Daniel 7 verse 13, to the Ancient of Days, which is God the Father, and came near before him, and to him, that is to the Son of Man, is given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. All peoples, nations, men of every tongue might serve him and his, that is the Son of Man. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not be taken away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So to these Israelites that understand the Son of Man is a title, that yes, it designates and emphasizes that Jesus is a son of Adam, that he is human, yes. But also that he's the coming Messiah who's going to be given all authority on heaven and earth. As Daniel 7 says, and you're going to see that most clearly at the cross and then, of course, at the resurrection. And God is going to raise him from the dead. He is the mediator between God and man. And he is truly, fully God, son of man, but yes, son of God. You notice out of all these titles, he's not denying one of them. Simply saying, yes, this is true over and over. Well, if you would ask the Apostle John who Jesus is, which is very much what... This first chapter feels like, who is he? He paints a vivid picture. Even more than the six titles we're looking at this morning, just re- reference point, you go back to chapter one, we've seen that Jesus is what? He is, verse one, the Logos, which of course is then saying he is God, he was with God and he is God, so he's the Logos, he's God, he's the light of men, verse four, the true light, verse nine, the only begotten of the Father, verse 14. He's the greater one than John the Baptist seen multiple times. He is Jesus the Christ, which we've seen the title. That's saying something more than a last name. He is the anointed one of God. He's the only begotten of God. The Lord, verse 23, the Lamb of God, the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. God's chosen one, Son of God, Rabbi, the Messiah. He of whom Moses prophesied, the prophesied one, King of Israel, Son of Man. 
Really, you think in 51 verses, that is trying to help you understand who is Jesus. He is all of these things which should drive you to what? A response of belief. Then I should believe in who he is. Well, what's in a name, right? A lot is in these names of who Jesus is. Well, lastly, I know that was six points, but I want to do three more briefly. Because I do think as you look at this, you can't help but look at not the main point of what John is writing here, pushing you towards belief in the Son of God, but really an implication of seeing this idea and this principle that's beginning here that is going to work itself out throughout the Gospel of John, this idea of discipleship. So I want to just real briefly look at three implications for personal discipleship or personal evangelism. Just a note, because you can't help but feel, what do they do? And go, that is a pattern of which the church has to follow and for us to follow. And it's not as complex as sometimes we make it out to be. So number one, looking at all of, again, these titles of who Jesus is, what do you do with these titles? Well, the first thing you should do with all these titles of who Jesus is, is you should tell people what you know. Particularly, you look at what the principle here is in multiple cases, is they go find somebody they knew. There's nothing wrong with talking to a stranger on an airplane. You should do that. Nothing wrong with finding someone on the street at all. But just principally here, they at least start with, who do they know? And they tell them what they knew. And they don't know everything. And honestly, you might be able to explain the gospel clearer than them at this point. Because they have no concept of the cross and redemption in that way. But they just simply say, this is what I, who I know, and this is what I know. And so they go, they tell what they know to who they know, which I think is a simple, beautiful, simple truth of who do you know, and you tell them what you know. And so Nathaniel, uh, or Philip finds Nathaniel, you're going to see Andrew find his brother and tell them what they know. And there's story after story within families where someone gets converted and believes the gospel, and they go and they tell the rest of their family, and you see other people come to know Christ. That same idea of come and see. What I have heard and seen, you need to come and you need to see and you need to hear. Well, secondly, not only is that true, but secondly, you're going to see that Jesus developed disciples. You're going to see this throughout the Gospels, Gospel of John, in different kinds of groups. That is to say, he is personal. He finds Philip. He's got two. Maybe more than that, you're going to see these large crowds. And that's nothing wrong with that. If you have large crowds who want to listen to you, preach the Gospel. Preach the Word. You can say, to some degree, anybody who has a larger group, you're going to teach, you're going to preach. But yet... There's different sizes. There's smaller groups. Those of kind of the disciples of a smaller group, even you kind of get into the book of Acts, and there seems to be 120 there that gathered in the upper room, probably the closer disciples. Of course, we know there's even a smaller group than that in the 12, the apostles, of which you could say 11, lost one, but gained another in Acts chapter 1. But even of the 12, you're going to see this in John, that Peter, James, and John, the three, even see more. The three that are taken on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so all of these different sizes, I think, have their value and have their importance. And it's tempting to say one is better than the other, but I think all I want to say to this is say, but look at what Jesus is doing, and he has people. That is to say, he's not alone. And he does take smaller groups, three, twelve, and he does teach and he does Disciple, And so I think there's place for all kinds of those different things. But you should probably looking at your own ministry and go, is there someone close to me 
There's their smaller group that I can give a lot of time to, and then there's their larger group that I can do that as well, which just simply is the third point that I wanted to highlight here, implications from this chapter, is that Jesus develops disciples by spending time with them. Throughout this gospel, it's going to build. He's spending time, days, weeks, years, with each of these disciples. Now, even here, this isn't really a call of the apostles, although it seemed, even with Nathaniel, that he's probably following, they probably are all apostles, known to the early church. But it is to say, later is a more call of the specific twelve. But even here, he's calling ones out, and he's going to spend time with them. And I know those are basic, but they're also important to say, you've got to find people, and you've got to spend time with them, and you've got to have something to teach, which of course means we ourselves need to be growing and finding and learning from someone else as well. I think these are massive implications, not only for the life of Christ, but again, throughout the Gospel of John, he's going to start using this phrase of discipleship. And I don't think it's actually the main point of pointing to Jesus as the Son of God, but it is going to be kind of a subtopic throughout the book of what does it look like to follow Jesus, as we've seen, to follow him, to come and to see and to invite others, because that's what it is, right? An invitation, come and see and bring others what you have seen and you have understood. The invitation that you and I are offered is the same one that we then should go and offer to others. But that's kind of simple phrase that it represents. You're simply saying, come with me and see what I have seen. I don't know, maybe sometimes that's as simple as saying, listen to this sermon or read this book or, or whatever it might be. You're just trying to get into the conversation. Because people are going to ask, why do you say, why do you believe what you believe? And you're simply, come along, I'll show you why. Come and see with me. There's an idea of discipleship, which is imitation, which is good. And as long as we're imitating Christ, then it's good that others would imitate us, just as Paul says. We want to be the kind of church that has followers coming to see the glory of Christ. That might happen many different unique ways, but it's only going to happen if you share it with another and you find who you know and you tell them what you know. And what we know a little bit of a plug for those who want to study more in what the gospel is to look towards even the class we're, we're offering. To say it's not even something simple just for conversion, but for you even as a believer to be reminded that God has shown grace to you. That there is a reality of, oh, I understand. Come and see that there is a God who is perfect and who is holy. Understand that there is one who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why? Because we're not perfect and we're not holy. It has an understanding that we need a Savior. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. If you don't believe, no one has paid your debt and you owe a debt, which is death. And it's an eternal debt, so it's an eternal death, as we saw multiple times there. All the judgments in Revelation. Eternal. Hell. Away from God. Gnashing. Teeth. But you look to Christ who can take away that sin. Why? Because he bears it. He takes it on the cross. And we believe in him, not only that he died, but that he rose again. And that idea of response, which all John is about, right? Believe. And so, we're going to get a lot of kind of evangelistic sermons. Why? Because John is just simply, by the nature of his writing, he's pushing you, evangelizing, saying, all of these things aren't just information for your head, but are information to push you towards witnessing for you to believe, and then for you to say to others, come and see 
why I believe what I believe about who? About Christ, who is the Messiah, the Lamb of God, the Son of God. You want to be one who invites others to say, come and see what we have seen and glorify Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word as we see it this morning. All the descriptions of who Christ is. Lord, we perhaps have a grasp of who Christ is and why it matters, of course, is because of who you are and who we are. That we are sinners in need of a Savior. It is good as we see here, even in someone like Nathaniel, who seems to have all the basic prejudices that each one of us has. That even not knowing Jesus, he would assume, well, what good could come from there? But yet, you call out those who are sinners, those who don't believe. You call in a similar way through your church, through other believers, through the preaching of your word, through the preaching of the gospel that's presented. Come and see what it is to be a Christian, what it is to be one who believes these things about Christ to be true. Lord, help us to be good and faithful witnesses as well, that we would communicate all of these things that we know, and we're here, we're learning, we're growing, but let it not stop there, but let it be a means then which we would be a conduit to communicate what we've learned to others that we might encourage, that we might preach, that we might call them to come and see the things that we have seen and the glories of Christ. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen.